if you join me in John chapter 16, we'll be in the second half of verse 4. John 16, verse 4. We're in this upper room conversation where Jesus is just hours before he's arrested in a garden, hours before he's tried and then crucified. It's the day before that happens, the evening before it happens, and gathered in an upper room, Jesus is having this extended conversation with his disciples. And we pick up a recurring theme here in this upper room about Jesus speaking about the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Steve kind of opened the door into this room. We're going to journey today, and we're going to go into the room and look at all the details. Because Jesus says this in chapter 16, and, and working through verse 4, your Bible might have it in a new paragraph there, the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So we're obviously jumping into in the middle of an extended conversation, and we're missing some context here. What is the these things that Jesus keeps mentioning here? Like, I did not say these things, but verse 6, now because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. What is the these things? Well, Jesus had just been talking about the hatred of the world. Remember a few weeks ago here on the other side of Easter now, we talked about the fact that the world was going to hate Jesus because Jesus exposed their sin and they just might hate us, his followers. So Jesus has been explaining this to his disciples, the world's hatred, and Jesus hadn't talked about the world's hatred of himself and his followers up to that point because he was with them. But now he's going away and so he's talked about it. And in talking about the world's hatred of them, Perhaps predictably, Jesus says, this is making you sad. This is bumming you out. And he shared this news with them because he was going to be gone. And then almost out of place, it feels like, as I read it anyway, almost out of place, he mentions, none of you are asking me where I'm going. And that moment, that moment kind of perplexes a lot of scholars because Thomas had earlier said to Jesus, hey, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Do you remember that? Where then Jesus said, I am the way. And when Jesus had been saying, I am just a little while, I'm going to the Father, Peter had asked him, Lord, where are you going? And then Jesus had told Peter, are you really concerned about that? Because you're about to deny me. And Peter was like, oh, no, never. And then, do you remember this happening? Just, just minutes, maybe. Half an hour earlier in this conversation, a couple of his disciples had very clearly asked, it seems, where are you going? So what's Jesus doing here? Is he being sarcastic? Was he meaning, oh, well, not right now are you asking me this question? Or I, I think maybe even most likely, was he helping us to see that his disciples, they've been focused on themselves in this moment, focused on themselves, even in the questions they had already asked. They were more worried that he was leaving them than they were concerned about Jesus. 
I get that sense from what Jesus is, is saying here. They have been asking about his destination only as a way to worry about their situation, right? They had been asking about his destination really not because they cared about him as much or where he was going as much, but because they were worried about their situation. It's like if you promised the family, hey, we're going to go get ice cream tonight. But then a call comes in and it's work and things change. And it's out of your control. And so you come into the family area and you start to break the news to everybody. You're like, guys, you know, with the tone of your voice, everybody already knows what that means. Ice cream's off, right? And, and you get interrupted. And the question is from the family, where are you going? And it isn't that they care where you're going. They care they're not getting ice cream, right? That's what we're worried about here. They've been asking about Jesus' destination, perhaps, as a way to worry about their situation. So Jesus says, you're not asking me where I'm going. You're not focused on what I'm doing. Either way, no matter how we interpret this, they aren't rejoicing about where he's going, and they aren't grieving about the cost, the cross that it will take to get there. What they're sad about is these things. The hatred of the world, the persecution, Jesus is saying, they'll endure and we're not even into the passage yet, so give me a moment here. I think there's an application for us right at the start. It's possible, evidently, to be around Jesus and inter interact with Jesus, and yet for Jesus not to be the center of your worship and affection, isn't it? There's a core doctrine of identity at play here. We were made to be worshipers of Jesus. And yet it's easy to be focused on ourselves, to be fulfilled. We were made to be fulfilled and delighted in our maker, in our king, for all that he is. It's all about him. Jesus is poking at that here with his disciples. And I think we should listen to those prodding questions. Let's not be so busy that we neglect to delight in our God. Church, let's not be so embattled that we stop living out of wonder about who he is. Let's not focus on the world's reaction to Jesus at the expense of our own focus on Jesus himself. I know it's easy. Man, it is easy. You know, for the first words you say in a conversation, for the first worries and concerns of your heart each day to be all oh, the world's, the world's going downhill or things ain't what they used to be. The culture is against us. On and on it could go and sorrow has filled your heart. You know what I've found to be true and I think what Jesus is pointing us to here is that when we focus on the personal results of the world's reaction to Jesus, it helps nobody. Jesus is here in this upper room going, nobody's focused on what they should be focused on here. I'm going to the Father. I'll be in heaven. I'll be your finished and your reigning king. Look to the Godhead you were created to know and enjoy. Look to me. Let me be your focus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Be sorry because of the world's reaction to me rejoice and wonder about who I am and what I've done for you. Do you want to change your world? Look to Jesus. 
Do you want to change the world? Adore Jesus with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and let his glory be what shapes your story and the stories you tell. The mood of all of your interactions. Center your life around him. All right, that's set up. Jesus goes on to say, verse 7, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. All right, you're sorry because the world's going to be hating you. You're not thinking about me and who I am. In the meantime, that's the wrong focus. But nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is something we've touched on here in the upper room a couple of times. Jesus keeps telling us this, I think, because Jesus really wants us to get this. And it's something I really struggle to believe. This is something I struggle to believe. I struggle to agree with Jesus on this. So I'm going to say this as directly as I can. A little bit tongue-in-cheek. And maybe let the tension that happens in our heads and our hearts help us to see whether we agree with Jesus or not. Okay? Jesus, we are better off here without him. Jesus, we are better off here without him. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Is this heresy? Something about that doesn't feel right. And of course, we are dead in our sins if Jesus isn't real. If Jesus hadn't come and lived and died and lived again, man, we are nothing without Jesus. And yet... Jesus says it's to our advantage that he goes away. When it comes to this side of the resurrection, if the choice is between Jesus being here in the room with us or in heaven at the Father's side, Jesus says we are better off here without him. How in the world could that be true? We've danced through this truth already three or four times, and yet the fact that I still struggle to believe it tells me I haven't picked up on this the way I need to yet. We're better off without Jesus here because, one, in his going, Jesus provided life. In his going, in his going to the cross, and to the grave, and to life again, and to the Father, he made the way, he is the way, the truth, and the life. In his going, Jesus provided life. We're better off here without Jesus. But then also, in his going, Jesus sent the Spirit. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And his going, Jesus sent the Spirit. The triumph of Christ and his return to the Father are the basis for the work of the Spirit. It's the basis for how the Spirit gets to operate. What his ministry is, is the finished work of Christ. 
Since Jesus provided life, now the Spirit can come, can produce life, can regenerate and be present and seal and dwell and empower us. Because Jesus went before, the Spirit here means even more. I've heard it said this way, in this life, the Spirit inside us is more advantageous than Jesus beside us. And Jesus was right. I'm not surprised to discover. It was to their advantage. Think about the results. I mean, Jesus had this band of followers who blessed their hearts. You know, were at most extraordinarily average. Extra medium in all of their impact. Not exceptionally effective or commendable, but here in just a moment, Jesus will be killed. And what do his disciples do? They flee, they despair, they desert him. And yet a few weeks later, 40 days later, the world is turned upside down when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And at that point then, they face open hostility and death with courageous joy, with triumphant faith. A resurrected Jesus and a present spirit Totally changed everything. It was to their advantage. And it's to our advantage. And so we ought to ask ourselves a question. If I announce today, HP family, we have a special guest today. And I step back and Jesus split heaven open and this roof line and walked into the room today. What would we do? I sure hope we would do something. What would we do? Is there anything at that point that you wouldn't think we could do? Is there any odds that you wouldn't think were meaningless? Is there any risk that would even feel risky if Jesus was in the room with us today? The problems, the fears, the burdens, the pains that you and I walked in with at that moment, we would know were handled because Jesus was here. Yes? And yet, it's evidently no exaggeration to Jesus that we are better off without him here than if he was. So, are we ready? Believers in Christ who the Spirit has awakened and filled and empowered, do you feel like that today? Do you believe that to be true right now? What's holding back this place if we are better off than if Jesus was here? Man. What is this helper doing that could possibly be better than having Jesus? Jesus explains that when it comes to the Spirit, we're convicted and guided by him. While we may be better off without Jesus, when it comes to the Spirit, we are convicted and guided by him. That's the remainder of our time together. Verse 8, Jesus says this. When he comes, the Spirit, this helper, this paraclete, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and then he breaks those three down concerning sin. 
because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. You know, apart from the conviction and work of the Holy Spirit, humanity would not be able to see the reality of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what Jesus is communicating. That the Spirit first convicts the world towards faith. He convicts the world towards faith. And, and Jesus explains three specific ways the Spirit convicts the world towards faith. Firstly, concerning sin, because they don't believe in me, he says. The Spirit convicts the world towards faith in light of sin. This is probably a rehearsed truth to us. The scripture tells us we are dead in our sins. And one of the Spirit's roles is to let us know about that, to convict us of our sin, to show us we were wrong, that we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. And if the Spirit didn't convict us of our sin, there's no way any person would break free from slavery to it in this life. We would never believe in Jesus because dead people can't believe. But here Jesus explains that sin is ultimately a persistent unbelief in him. And sin persists that way in us unless God intervenes. And praise the Lord, but God intervened. Unless the Spirit convicts us towards faith in the work of Jesus, we would never know him. You know, last week, Pastor Steve shared the the picture that the Holy Spirit is ultimately a floodlight, right? A floodlight illuminating, bringing attention to, bearing witness about Jesus. Maybe to run with that theme, we could say that the Holy Spirit is an exam light as well. An exam light. You know what I'm talking about, like a, a spotlight? Man, it might be a sin for you to do this, but if you got real bored one day and scrolled way back in my Instagram account. Back to the silly, crazy pictures I posted when I was even sillier and crazier than I am today. You would, you would discover that I have bad dental hygiene. Or I would like to, to say bad genes towards dental strength. One way or the other, I've had a lot of cavities, guys. Can I just be honest with you here? Is this a safe place for this? And, you know, I, I like to think this. I think I have a picture uh, of, yeah, one of these moments. I'd like to think all the cool kids get cavities, you know? That's, that's what I'd like to say. Um, and, and when you're at the dentist, they have this examination light, right? And they focus it in right on where they're working. And, and in fact, in this picture, you, the aperture of the camera doesn't even let you see what's going on inside that illuminated area because it's so bright compared to the rest of the room. In that sense, the examination light shows the cavity. It reveals the, de the decay. So the dentist knows what to do and what to fix, right? Holy Spirit is a lot like that when it comes to sin. Spirit exposes and reveals sin and convicts of that sin, but not towards shame, not towards condemnation, towards faith. Carson says it like this, The aim of the Spirit's work is not to produce a guilty verdict. That already stands. 
but to bring the defendant to see the perilous condition in which he stands. This may prompt him to enter a plea for mercy, and only mercy will save him. So when the Spirit convicts you, how do you react? I encourage us, listen, respond, repent, follow him back to forgiveness and to the gospel, the source of the forgiveness as a believer you already have in Christ. The Spirit convicts in light of sin, but also convicts towards faith in light of righteousness. Jesus says, he convicts concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What's him going to the Father and us not seeing him have anything to do with righteousness? Well, remember recently we just saw in chapter 15, verse 22, that Jesus exposed sin through his words and his works. He was the most clear and condensed, sharpest contrast to sin the world's ever known. He was the Image of God on earth. But who will expose sin by showcasing righteousness now that Jesus is leaving? The Spirit. The Spirit will. The Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness because he bears witness to righteousness. He's a signal in the world of God's nature and God's character. His ministry in various ways is to display the perfection and righteousness and beauty of God but also because he shows our righteousness to be lacking. He not only shows what God's righteousness is, he shows the reality of what our righteousness is. In an ironic sense, our righteousness isn't righteousness. It's not good enough. And it's the Spirit who helps us discover this. So in that sense, a sign of authentic conviction of the Spirit Towards faith is a realization that you aren't the good person you wanted to be. That your best is still not enough to fulfill you, nor God's demands of you. Paul models it for us like this when he says, If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, or righteousness you might say, I have more, we see you Paul, but whatever I gain, he says, I Count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. That is a realization, a truth that only the Spirit can make clear to us. The Spirit reveals God's preeminence in our own inability. And then thirdly, the Spirit convicts towards faith. Towards faith in light of judgment, Jesus says. Concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit convicts the world of the reality that sin has been defeated, the devil is condemned, and if the ruler of sin is judged, so are all who follow him. Jesus to show the world how he would die, had just earlier said in chapter 12 that now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's speaking of the cross. When I am on that cross dying, now is the judgment of the world and the ruler of this world cast out. His death would be the judgment of sin and all in sin, of the evil world system and the ruler of that world system. 
Paul would speak of it this way in his letter to the church in Colossae. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. What are the effects of that salvation? Having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, set aside now, nailing it to the cross, and finally here, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. By the work of Jesus, the ruler of this world, The devil and all in his sinful dominion are triumphed over, are disarmed, and are judged. That is good news. The Spirit speaks this reality over creation. Hey, the outcomes, they're known already. The verdict is already proclaimed. The world system, its ruler, are judged, and their outcome is certain. That judgment is fair, and it's what we all deserve with him. I mean, imagine you're lining up to play a game. Gym class, circa 1983 for you, maybe. And the referee says, hey, this is my game. I make the rules, and there are two captains, one over here and one over there. But then the next thing you know, the referee has placed everybody on this captain's team, the entire school. They're on one team. And over there, that team is just the captain standing by himself. And then the referee says, hey, so just so you know, the loser of this game will be punished forever. The stakes are high. And because of justice and, and the rules of the game, this team is already the winner. That team with just a captain right now, he, that's the winning team. You're a captain Everyone in the school, he's judged already. Now, you may may switch teams if you would like. Let's play the game. That's essentially what the Spirit does in our world. And the Spirit is at work across the globe, enabling people to see the team that they're on. And then to receive the gift of grace and get off of that losing team. We need to remember John the Baptist testified about Jesus, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We're not, like in this neutral place, deciding which team we're on and you know, whether or not we're going to go to heaven or hell. No, we are already on the losing team. But the Spirit awakens faith in order that we might be brought to mercy. Spirit does this, convicting the world towards faith concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Are we seeing already why it's to our advantage that Jesus has secured salvation and gone to the Father to send us the Spirit to convict us and bring us to light about this and move us into his kingdom? Our eternity with God in heaven is made possible by his work. And you know, in seeing then this application of the Spirit's work, of his ministry in our world, church, can I make a recommendation towards us? We ought to have unassailable confidence and joy. 
It's the Lord Jesus that's building his church. The Father has given his people over to his Son, and they together have sent the Spirit who's working in the world to convict it of its sin, of its righteousness compared to God's and to the reality of judgment. And we know that we have no confidence on our own, that we have what it takes to convince ourselves, to realize ourselves, or to convince anyone else of the reality of where they stand or the reality of who God is. But we are far from abandoned to our punishment or to this task of making disciples. We are helped. Even more, we are chosen instruments by which the Spirit performs that ministry. So today we see it right here, right now, in this room. Like, look around and know what's happening down the hallway here today and across millions of churches gathered around the globe. This is not because a brand or a church or an organization or a pastor or a teacher or a leader or fill in the blank. It is because God, God alone, and he is here and he is doing it. And he's given us a role and a gift and an opportunity to be the means through which he does it. Any failure or fear of failure can be obliterated when we know who it is that's doing the job. Well, perhaps like a pastor, Jesus says, I still have many things to say in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He had started off our section saying, I did not say these things to you because I was with you, but now I'm saying them to you because I'm going. But now Jesus says, I still have more to say. And if you're the disciples, you're like, oh, no. (laughs) Or, oh, yes. Like, which way is this going? And Jesus says, you can't bear them now. He's upfront about the fact that he's not going to share all the things that he wants to, but he has a plan in place for communicating this vital information. He says in verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I've said he will take what's mine and declare it to you. We're seeing this morning as an overarching principle that we're convicted and guided by the Spirit. We saw how the Spirit convicts the world towards faith. Here, Jesus tells us the Spirit guides the disciples towards truth. We're convicted towards faith. We're guided towards truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And the you here, let's not mistake, in context, the you is the the disciples gathered in that upper room with Jesus. We need to ask, in which way did the Spirit keep this promise of Jesus to the disciples? And then to whatever degree after that, to what way and in what extent does that apply to us today? Well, Well, then what does the Spirit end up doing as he guides them into all truth? Jesus kind of explains how this is going to happen. It's not omniscience. But they're led into a true understanding of Jesus. They're led into seeing a a sense of the plan for the future. Led into all that the Father has. 
And maybe let me just fast forward to the condensed version here. He's saying that the apostles are going to be carried along by the spirit of truth of Christ and who he is. And they were. We have that knowledge today in the word of God. They were led into all the truth about who God was and carried along by the Spirit, guided into it to record it, to write it, to teach it. And then God preserved it through history for us to know as well. The Spirit guided them into the truth of God and Jesus, ultimately through the writing of Scripture. And since it's true, the Spirit guides the disciples towards truth, we then must follow the Spirit into the truth of the Bible. We follow the Spirit and His conviction and His leading in our life generally, and you'll never know that more accurately than following Him into the truth of the Bible. Think of Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. People that the Spirit has convicted and converted into faith are also guided into grow in the reading of the word, saturating their minds in its truth. So the application here is clear to us today. Friends, read God's word. A chapter a day for the rest of your life, in community with others, listening to it, singing it, memorizing it. Read God's word. We must follow the Spirit into the truth of the Bible. Then we must follow the Spirit to respond to that truth. We must respond to Jesus as revealed in God's word. As we grow into truth, we respond to the truth that's revealed Jesus says that the truth his disciples are going to be led to see, that truth was all that the Father has. These truths are not maxims, they're not fables, they're not facts alone. They are of Jesus. They are of all the Father has. One does not simply see God in the word and then walk away unchanged. Ephesians 4 would say, that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and you were taught about him, as in the truth in Jesus, what happens? Put off your old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Believers made alive in Christ Jesus by the convicting work of the Spirit ought to constantly immerse ourselves in as much graciously revealed truth as we can, forging it into our lives until it transforms us and then prompts us into enthusiastic praise and worshipful adoration focused on who God is as we see him in Scripture with all we have for all of our life. Is that how I read the Bible? Can't let it be. A bore, it is not a clinical dissection, it is it's not academic, it's not something to be forgotten. The Holy Spirit brought glory to Jesus by guiding these disciples into this truth. And may he bring glory to Jesus by guiding you and I today actively into it, moment after moment, day after day, transforming us through its truth. That's the work he's here to do. Better than Jesus staying around, 
The Spirit is at work. Because Jesus lived and then died and then lived and then went to the Father and sent the Spirit, we are convicted and guided towards him. What a life. We have what it takes. 